Welcome to Season 4 of Business Book Talk. I'm your host, Bob Garlick. This year, we have even more great books to help you excel in business and life. You can search for book topics and themes at businessbooktalk.com or subscribe using your smartphone for great content on the go. Hey, everybody, it's Bob again, and I've got The Safe Investor, How to Make Your Money Grow in a Volatile Global Economy, and I've got Tim McCarthy with me today. Hey, Tim, how's it going? Just fine. Thanks so much, Bob. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, in, in investing. We're going to get into the trust, trusting your investor a, bit, a little bit later, but let's find out a little bit more about you. What got you into the investing game? Well, I, I, you know, I talk about a bit in the um, in the in the first chapter in a preface. The uh, you know my my I, my dad got killed in a car accident when I was eighteen, and so like what happens to so many, uh, particularly women, where they were sort of relying on their husband to to do the financing. It's certainly different now, but certain late sixties, early seventies, quite different. And uh, she made a lot of mistakes in investing, and so it was at that point. Uh, particularly after seeing the mistakes through my early 20s that I really said, God, this is a problem and and it deserves a lot of attention. And uh, so I backed into it from seeing the need, ironically enough, and then uh, went to Wall Street. Cool. Now, did you do the, the, the traditional way where they put you on the bull floor for a little bit and then they finally got you up into, into uh, trading and then up into the offices or did you jump straight into the office? I, I started on the analyst side. I started okay. as an international uh, credit fixed income analyst, a uh, year and a half on Wall Street, then two years in Germany. And um, so it was it was very much uh, constantly studying annual reports in foreign languages and struggling through that and struggling through their accounting and the like. So that was really all my origin. Cool. Now, uh, this is a little coming out a little bit on uh, left field here, but, you know, there's been a lot of movies about that industry and uh, Hollywoodization of the reality. Do you think it, it, it's you guys get a, a fair representation in, in the movies or, or are they over-dramatizing what's really going on? Well, it's ironic. I just wrote an article, you know, how to avoid the wolf on Wall Street. <laughs> and one of the things I, f- I feel is that, you know, the overwhelming majority of advisors and brokers that I've, I've worked with over the years and, oh God, I don't know, some well over 25 countries and the overwhelming majority of them try to do a good job and and you know they take the attitude of what i sell this to my parents and how do i help people um but the infamous few you know uh, a few crooks few bad guys um you know ruin the image the the image uh and let's face it you know if you wrote a film about a guy that comes to work every day and tries to do a good job for investors that's a pretty boring <laughs> book pretty boring movie so yeah. naturally the bad guys get the attention but I also feel the industry's not done a great job of, of selling themselves. You know, you look at, take the top brokers uh, and, you know, the top brokerage companies and, and banks, you know, their ads are, you know, children running on mountains and nice songs like Coca-Cola ads. They really don't get in and and do a good job selling just how good a lot of their brokers are. I think a lot of the brokers and advisors are actually better than the image that their own companies present. So. That all adds to, uh, I know where 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 brokers rank in terms of being trusted and advisors, and that all adds to it. Well, it's almost like you guys are in the same realm as uh, car car salespeople. It's somebody you have yeah. to trust, but goddamn, I just can't trust this guy. Or it's you know, it's 
I don't know what it is. It's it's just this. I think it's people. Uh, they spend so much time getting the money after being working really hard and they're getting taxed like crazy, and then when it actually gives time to like, okay, you know, here's my nest egg. Please grow it for me. That's a huge uh, faith thing you've got to give to the person. It's like, I trust you to do that. Same with a car. A car is a very big investment. Uh, it's it's a bad investment a lot of times, regardless of the car you get, because as soon as you drive it off drive it off a lot, you lose 50% of the value. But uh, the people are very emotionally attached to their car. Do you think people are too overly attached to their money emotionally? Well, you know, let's face it, uh, the, and I saw with my mother, it does matter. You want that money to grow, and the whole the whole purpose of why I wrote The Safe Investor is most people aren't looking for incrementally getting the greatest, you know, return or better return than everybody else over the next year. They're just saying, I got to grow it more than it's sitting in the bank, but on the other hand, I don't want to lose it, so... You know that that's because I know what my life could look like in my later years if if, if I lose a whole bunch of my money. So it it is a it is a very real um, real thing. In fact, I ended up putting about a quarter of the book, the final whole final quarter of the book, and how do you pick an advisor and all of that? Because a lot of people don't realize that despite the fact that uh, it's such a do-it-yourself world now. Uh, still over half the money in, in the U.S. and Canada, an advisor is involved. He's either managing it for them or, or, or actively consulting there. So people use advisors. And uh, to your point, they, they're afraid. You know, they, they, they feel like they're, you know, little Red Riding Hood looking at the at the big bad wolf in, a, in the nighty and saying, oh, God, how do I get help there? And, and yet a lot of the advisors are pretty good. As I said, the individual and many of the individual advisors have actually a better rep reputation than the big companies they work for. Mm. You know, and it, it uh, you know, when you're dealing with an advisor, and I think let's get into some, some defining of the meaning of words. When you use the word advisor, that's what they're doing. They're advising you on a specific opportunities that they have been introduced to or researched. And it's almost like going to your doctor and saying, hey, doc, I've got this problem. And he gives you, I advise that you take this drug. And uh, let's see what happens. I think the difference, maybe the difference even between a salesman and an advisor and the, and, the, and the doctor is a great analogy. You know, I often often say it's important to, to keep the discipline yourself when you talk to a doctor or an advisor. If you walked in, a doctor said, oh, I've got this headache in the back of my head. Can you do me a favor and pop the back of my, back of my skull? It's cancer and cut it off my brain stem. <laughs> the doctor will go, wait a second. I'm in charge of diagnosis and remedy. You're in charge of symptoms. So let's focus in on your symptoms first. And a good advisor will do that. It's saying, you know, there's there, there's so many different directions that you may need or not need to go into. Let's start with you first. See what you're doing, how much money you have, what your time frames are, and and what your natural and emotional biases are before we start talking about, uh, you know, what's the best products or what's the best way forward. That's what a good advisor does. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the book. Um you know, I, I went through the book, and you're right that there is the back section. It's all about how to find a great advisor, and and uh, almost about the mindset that you have to have. But do you think it's it's a, a book that you should read cover to cover, or sh- could you jump to that f- that back section and just read about finding an advisor? What what would you recommend? Well, you know, this is all. It's a great question. I haven't been asked that before. And what you're what you're forcing, 
uh, a person to do, and I like it, or an author to do, is to say, hey, look, do what would you do with this book if you picked it up the first time? And it so depends, you know, we're all uh, in a hurry on on where you're where you want to focus. Uh, if you want to understand why investing is the way it is, and what is a lot of the underlying um, support or background for how investing principles got there, which ones make sense, that's the first hundred pages because that's giving people stories about um, what the process is really like and what are the big things you'll learn out of, uh, of observing uh, investing processes, what people do all over the world, um, obviously including the U.S. and Canada a lot, but all over the world. The, 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 and that's to about 100, page 100, 105 or so. And then that middle section is really about if you're the type that says, okay, I know that already. I just Tell me what to do <laughs> or how do I do it? And so that sort of page 100 to 200 gets into two, maybe 225, really gets into how do you do it? What do I put where and why? Uh, so if you're that type of person that likes to skip to the, the, the assembly instructions right away, then you'd go to the middle. And then lastly, if you're saying, how do I manage my advisor? I don't want to do it, but I need to know how I pick a guy, what are the questions I ask him, and then what the hell do I do with the answer? You know, it is funny, Bob, when you go overseas and you, you take those language classes and you say, okay, I got the question, uh, and say, okay, where is the train station? And then the guy gives you an answer and you go, oh, no, I, I didn't memorize what all the possible answers could be. I don't know what he's saying. Well, that happens with people, advisors, they ask the question and they get the answer and they go, oh, man, it's all this jargon. So, I, you know, I try to help people through what, what, how do you interpret the answers? And then lastly, even on an ongoing basis, you know, at the end of the year, what is good, what is bad? What am I supposed to like or not like? Because that's a, that's a problem, you know, did he underperform or overperform? How do I get context on that? So if you really focus on the advisor, you just go to the last three, four chapters. So uh, I'm glad you asked that. I'd never been asked that before. You know, you, you said something that's very, very underperforming and overperforming. Can an advisor overperform? Is a stock that's overperforming a, a, a risk? Well, you know, one of the best things that happen, and this is more at the fun level, because I talk a lot more about asset classes. Um, you know, at the end of the day, most people aren't picking stocks. Uh, they, and, and most of the better performance comes out of making sure you've got a broad, diversified group of asset classes rather than worried about a particular stock. But to your question, one of the best things that came out of research is last quarter's great performer, more often than not, of, of a fund manager, it can be this quarter or this year's uh, bottom quartile performer. And so it's sort of live by the sword, die by the sword. If a guy's really going to maximize short-term performance, since most people really, even most pros, can't call markets, you know, they end up then underperforming. So a risk-adjusted, again, for the safe investor, wanting to get performance but not just not by sacrificing too much in the long-term risk side, we'll be looking at, you know, why did they get what, what performance they did and is it a properly balanced portfolio which is so much more important than, you know, beating the S&P by, you know, 50 basis points. Mm. The, the problem I think advisors have is is they communicate too often with their client base and say, oh, I just wanted to give you your weekly report. And it, I, for me, I think it would be more useful to go back to the person and give advice like that. I said, look, at, you know, you, you got uh, 18% last year in this, this uh, group. 
Um, and I'm thinking they're not going to be as active this year. Do you want to shuffle it around or you just want to wait and, and play the long game? Or do you think they're, that that's kind of like opening up a can of worms? Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, do you remember the Maytag repairman ad where the guy would just be sitting there? That, that phenomenon goes on with advisors. Often your best advisor is the one that you maybe had over a decade and he never, uh, he never performed above the average, um, uh, in, in any one year, but very consistently kept you off the bottom, uh, and kept you away from big mistakes and only talked to you once a year. And some years really didn't move much at all. Um, and you'd be looking and saying, well, you're not working much because you're not doing anything. It's like, yeah, yeah I, you paid me not to do too much because uh, active, active moving around in large chunks of a, of a portfolio is more often than not leads to decreased performance. That doesn't mean you don't make some very important subtle trending, uh, rebalancing and the like, moving out of some funds that uh, may be in, in, in jeopardy of closing down, which I talk about a lot um, is better and, and uh, it, it's interesting some advisors have to do a little more sometimes just because the client will be saying hey you didn't do anything last year <laughs> and so uh, but it's often better to keep it, the movements fairly slow fairly steady it's a subtle game of chess yeah a, a life game of chess yeah now in the back section um, you've got the seven critical lessons can we touch on those? Well, it really starts with um, with looking at that diversification. That's what people miss. Um, they just don't get the diversification thing right. The good news is you don't have to panic um, or worry that you, to get it exactly right. You just have to make sure it's nice and broad and you, and you cover all the tenets of diversification, which is a lot of different asset classes not worrying about one going down one year or the other uh, going up. Um, and then likewise, use time as a very powerful weapon. Uh, I, I talk about trickling. It, it, people don't realize how powerful time is. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. I took last century and said, let's say you were the most unlucky of all safe investors. You built a nice, broadly diversified portfolio, and you really use time as a weapon, meaning just putting a little bit every year in from, let's say, the time you're 45 until you're 65, and then likewise keeping the discipline of only taking a little bit out every year. But let's say you just had the worst timing luck of all. And that would have been actually 1930, more than 1929, 1930, where you'd be max invested. And then we all know what happens with the Great Depression. Well, it turns out that had you done investing just like that, trickling in and then trickling out over that life period from 45 on, it didn't matter at all that you, you were max invested in the Great Depression. You still end up earning a lot more money than you would have if it was left in the bank. And more importantly, depending on how you set the timing up, it lasted well into your 90s, which, which is so important. So understanding the power of trickling in and trickling out is, is, is also important. I think the other important dimension is recognizing that country diversification is important, particularly this century, um, because we've got a lot of countries that are emerging. People don't realize that, uh, that, that there's a group of countries within emerging markets that have actually already emerged. Uh, you've lived in some of them. Um, and that when you add that into your mix, you actually 
decrease risk rather than um, uh, increasing risk by going into these, uh, having a portion in the top 20 growth countries, for instance. So getting that kind of mix is important. So, so that, that's the essence of, of what you want to, want to uh, make sure you do. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, we talk about growth and um, in, in the developed countries, they've got pretty small growth. And then when I was in Asia, if it was if China wasn't doing eleven, twelve percent, everybody was panicking that they weren't uh, they weren't growing fast enough. And and here in Canada, you're happy to get uh, zero or one, not minus one or minus two. Um, so my question is: Are uh, countries and and markets that are in very very uh, aggressive markets that are seeing you know eleven, twelve percent? gross national product growth, are, are those safe places to invest or are they more volatile? Well, I th- what, what we're seeing now is the growth rates in a lot of the, quote, growth countries has slowed down. Although to your exact point, if you look out over the next decade or two, which you'd want to if you're doing your, your life investment plan, they are, they are still going to grow uh, between 50 and 100% more than the developed countries. Uh, certainly, uh, if you took a basket of them, of the top 20 countries, they, they conservatively grow at sort of 4 to 5% or so, depending on, on, on assumptions. Whereas the developed world, to your point, it's going to be lucky as a group to grow, to grow period, let alone in a, in a, in a 2% range. Um, so that, uh, you know, it is important to get that mix in there. The growth countries will be more volatile. Um, however, I think just this last decade now, if we look at what happened in beginning 2000, 2001, and then again in 2008, we had some pretty wicked volatility in the developed countries as well. <laughs> um, the, the, the hard part to get people comfortable with is you get more return from the volatile assets. But what takes care of that volatility so it's low risk is a combination of really spreading it across a lot of different types and in this case a lot of different countries and then time you know again trickling and trickling out so that way then the volatility doesn't doesn't bother you to the negative but you are able to in effect milk the increased return that you do get on the volatility um, I think, you know, Larry Fink, the, the head of BlackRock, said it best when he was looking at a lot of these uh, interesting countries like a Mexico, for instance, that are really now at, at, in, a, in a growth stage. Um, you know, he said, look, let's face it, last century was the American century. But every year wasn't the American year. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to be the case with a lot of these countries. So, you know, it's just when you look at that overall portfolio over the next 20, 30 years of your life, uh, having zero invested in in this category of the 20, 25 growth countries is really a mistake. They're now well over a third of the world's GDP, and the, their stock prices will be catching up to that that kind of growth. And so you, it, to say I should have zero there, it's not safe, actually increases your risk rather than decreases your risk. Hmm. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about your aha moment. All the authors that I talk to, you know, they, they've got years and years and years of experience. They start putting their notes together. They start writing the book. And somewhere in that, you know, six-month uh, period or, or two-year period when they're putting the book together, uh, they have an aha moment where something they knew was true, but it really crystallizes for them. What was your aha moment? 
Well, it's I backed into it really. I uh, when when I announced to uh, uh, Nico Asset Management and all the the troops that, throughout Asia that I was retiring, uh, they immediately said, "Oh, good! Now you can write the sequel." I had written a bestseller in in, in Japanese and and uh, two thousand. And it, and it did help their branding. So they'd always wanted me to write a sequel. And I was like, hey, I got a daytime job. <laughs> you know, I got other things to do. So when I retired, they were like, now you have no excuse. And so I set out to just write a sequel in Chinese and in Japanese. Um, but to do that, naturally, I'd have to do a certain amount of research here in the U.S. This is Mecca for investing. And I wanted to make sure I was updating, making a more au courant set of rec- recommendations. So when I started to do the research here, this would have been eh, two years ago, um, the big shock hit me. Uh, and, and that was there were a lot of things that had gotten been, been forgotten in this market. Uh, for instance, trading is actually more active. People are turning over their portfolios more today than they were 25 years ago, which blew me away. But it made sense when you talk to people. You know, we, we live in an ADD, you know, multitasking world and they're constantly subjected to news. And so they'll even say, oh, yeah, I have to invest for long term. <laughs> then they turn around and, and still trade way too much. Uh, and it just doesn't work. The, 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 the concept of actively moving asset classes, trying to be a global macro manager, it, it just doesn't work. And then the other thing, as I alluded to before, is international. I mean, it, I found it ironic that I can get more breadth of product, uh, see the international investors doing a better job of getting a broad country mix in Hong Kong, a London, even a Tokyo of all places. You know, world's thinnest books has to be, you know, great Japanese investing document. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and yet they did a better job in getting a broader mix of countries than, than we do. There's a certain amount of hubris here and obviously it's a great country and, and, and you know, it's going to continue to grow here in America. But to have so little invested, to still look in international, in a, especially the emerging markets, is for speculative, my, my trading pocket only. That's really a mistake. It's just it, just a lack of recognition here of just how powerful and, and how much more they're going to grow, these these top 20 uh, growth countries. And that, that was just being mixed, missed. And it's not even being missed only by the average public. It's by a lot of the analysts in the press. Uh, when you just look at the number of negative stories that constantly come out, um, uh, about anything going on in the emerging worlds, of course people are scared. Um, and I mean, I, I just uh, the other day saw, you know, when they arrested the uh, the drug kingpin in Mexico, the average American's image, even a lot of the analysts, is either guys running across the, the Rio Grande River, you know, dry bed river, or drug, drug lords getting arrested, and they miss entirely what's going on in the deregulation of telecoms and in oil, the amount of shale oil there, how many really well-educated immigrants from Mexico have gone back to Mexico with college degrees and with very practical training and are really turning that country around. You don't read any articles about that. So that's that was the big aha moment of, God, you know, Americans, uh, Canadians are actually better at it, uh, being a bit, a bit better connected with the rest of the world. But, but Americans are just not realizing that there is another world out there uh, and it's got a lot of opportunities and a, a percentage mixed in your long-term portfolio can decrease your risk as well as increase your return. So that was the big aha for me. Hmm. Interesting. You know, it, it's um, I was I was looking at uh, one of your charts in the book. I had it marked, and it's it's um, 
basically performance of Asian tigers versus developing countries. And it's shocking. You, you look at the top uh, one, South Korea, at 16.3%. And then you look at developed Europe, Europe at 06 And you say, geez, if only I'd invested in Asia. Um, it, it's, I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a critical point to understand that the, when you invest you're investing in the global economy. You're not investing in Kentucky. You're not investing in Alberta. You're investing in the global market. And you've got to understand that there's a lot of stuff that is not reported on news because it's just not sexy. Well, and part of it is is that people allow their personal prejudices and biases, their politics to get involved, and then that's where they miss the opportunities. And, I'm, and South Korea is a perfect example. We've been, we've told ourselves, we've we've been constantly saying, and I've heard so many investors say, I don't know about South Korea, I don't want to go in there. You know, there's that, all the Kim Jongs in there, they're going to attack <laughs> and all that. And, you know, I mean, I, I put together an, an, an investment group and bought the uh, fourth largest investment bank in Korea in the middle of the worst crisis. This was the IMF crisis. We made 600% for our investors there in three years on 65 million bucks. So it's, you know, I've said to a lot of people, you know, while you're worried about Kim Jong-il, an awful lot of people have made an awful lot of money. And, you know, the reality today is you look at how weak Kim Jong-il is. You know, they sat, you know, saber rattle, but the, the, the majority of Koreans know if he pulled anything, South Korea is so strong now that uh, it's a, it's about as much of a threat in a lot of ways as is we would view we would view uh, Mexico or, or Nicaragua invading America or Canada. It just, oh, exactly. Yeah, they just miss it, or they think. I'll, I'll give you another example. This was quite sad, but so telling. So many people still have this this aversion to communism, and I'm certainly anti-communist. But when it comes to investing, I remember one American executive saying to me, "He said, Tim, you know, you're going into China like that. You got to watch it. Remember, investing there it's a one-party system." And we were in, in Tokyo at the time, and I said, "What do you think Japan has been for the last sixty years?" Exactly. You know, they don't they don't realize that different countries will have different paths to success, and don't let your political biases get in the way of investing opportunities. Mm. It's it's so true. I wanted to talk to you about long term. You know, we've mentioned several times. What, in your uh, opinion, is long term, and what is short term? Is is short, You know, is there a, an actual defining amount of years that where you kind of like, oh, okay, now we're getting into long term? God, that's a great question, especially because so many people say I'm doing it for the long term and then trade, you know, where they don't buy green bananas. Yeah. <laughs> so -term. Uh, and time and understanding that the, the elements of time is important. Uh, people get it with an awful lot of things. And most things we look at in life are annual or even daily. But long-term would be taking a look at it each year. When you get to investing, you have to think much more like if you planted a fruit tree. Uh, an almond tree takes six, seven years or walnut trees to come in. Uh, uh, with Bordeaux wines, we know great scotches. No, that's got a 12-year cycle. And people are used to that with, with – um, certain products they don't understand it's the same with investing that a lot of the cycles in investing can take a decade or more to play out i remember in fact i talk about this in the book a bit where gold if if an advisor had a portion of his your portfolio in gold every year he would have underperformed 
until uh, like 2008. And then in one quarter, he would have cut your your portfolio's loss in probably half. So it's it's understanding that mix and how long these cycles take to come in. It's not our nature. We like winners and losers. Um, even in silly things, let's face it, the Academy Awards, the nominees are probably much more important than who actually wins. It, it's so arbitrary. Um, but we can't help it. Uh, our nature is who won. And, and the reality is, as I said before, generally who won in a portfolio on an, in an annual basis is the least important part. So what you're looking at then as a time is, is your life. Um, if, if you're 50, going to work for 15 more years, you've got an accumulation period and then a deaccumulation period, you hope, of at least 30 more years after that. Well, that's 45 years. That's almost a half a century. That's your time frame. Um, uh, likewise, though, if you're saving to buy a house in 10 years, you, you know, you're, you're just married and you don't think you're going to have the money for about 10 more years, then that's a, low, uh, that's a closer cycle. So um, it's a very personal thing to set the time frames, but you have to understand for most people, you're looking at even at 50, uh, looking at a 40-year cycle of, of investing. Let's talk a little bit about advisors. I love Chapter 17, The Naked Advisor. Yeah, I, I love that. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the show or, or listened to the guy. You know, he just says, you know, pure food. Look at what, look at the ingredients, and, and don't screw them up too much or hide stuff. Um, and uh, when I when I remember first first reading the book, I thought, God, this is this is the same thing for advice. You know, when you get these complex products, uh, and they're layered in with fees and and different different uh, stuff, and you don't know what's going on, loaded with a lot of derivatives. Um, and then you just can't understand what the hell the guy's talking about. That's that's like the same thing with food um, um, that you're not seeing the underlying ingredients. And uh, and likewise, you know, sadly, some a lot of people in, in our industry tend to purposely try to obfuscate it a little bit because it makes them look like they're really intelligent, uh, and it makes the investor feel uh, a little insecure, like like maybe I have to use this guy because I don't know what the hell he's talking about. So uh, rather you want you want an advisor in effect that doesn't physically bear it all, but at least in its presentation is open kimono. What you see is what you get. Make sure that he 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 doesn't he has products that you can understand the fundamentals quickly about what's an equity, what's a what's a bond, what's a REIT, uh, what are the different countries mixes and the like. And then uh, when he puts the portfolio together. You can understand it, you know, not not too much uh, Greek and Latin in the in the and and acronyms in the presentation. So that's what I mean by naked, and that's what you want. And if you don't understand them, or it just sounds too complex, on average, here here's one sad part in the business. There, there are times when companies and and reps will put together packages to make to get a better return for you. The risks, though, are are hidden. And, and and that's a problem. Uh, and so, therefore, the more naked, in effect, the more simple that each one of the products that go into a portfolio are to where you can understand each one of them, you know, likely the better off you are. 
you know, these days, uh, in a lot of the advisors that I'm chatting with, they have these preset packages that are put together by by groups, and they'll say, well, you know, this is a this is a, a medium risk, and this is a high risk, and this is a low risk, um, and this is what we're expecting to happen happen over the next uh, twelve to eighteen months or twenty four months. Uh, those are very complex because they're so they're, like it's it's a it's a it's a group of of invest uh, investing opportunities that have been just put together in a package, and they say, well, you know, there's this and that. So you really have no idea what you're investing in. Do you think those are, you know, risky? Let's talk about the positive aspects of these preset packages. Um, sometimes they're a fund, for instance. the The advantage of them is you get is you should get, and a lot of them do get you a nice broad diversification, and you don't have to be a millionaire to buy one. I mean. There are a lot of great advisors out there, but an awful lot of them have really high minimums. And, and and I'm not talking a quarter of a million dollars to invest. It's often a half a million or even a million. So what does a poor guy do that, you know, he's a retired, you know, coming up on retirement, he's a school teacher. Maybe he and his wife have 100000 and and they're, you know, how do they get good advice? Or they're 45 wanting to each year to do the trickle investing of putting 5000 bucks or 10000 bucks aside. It's hard to get you know uh, the kind of same quality advice that a, that that uh, the big shots get. So those packages, both you know, balanced funds and the like, internationally diversified balanced funds, or even structures where there's multiple managers in them, they get you the diversity with a minimum amount of money to put in. And so that's that's powerful. It, what, what's nice today is a a, a a man or a woman that only has five or ten thousand dollars to invest can get almost as much diversity um, at not paying a lot more um, as somebody that's got a million bucks. And that's powerful. And, and that's the big good part. Uh, the, 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 the concerns I have is when they are only looking at it at 12 or 24 month uh, um, process, you just can't predict what's going to happen in the next year or two. And you don't want to. Um, and a lot of times they talk about perfect optimization, and and it's it's in effect this this concept of false precision because you can't predict what the world's going to do. Uh, the way I like to look at it, Bob, is the old there's an old expression: don't measure with a micrometer if you're going to mark with a grease pencil and hit with an axe. And that's what the, the reality is. The future's always that way. So you're really looking at: am I set up for the next decade or two? in a nice broad package of portfolio and yeah I'm going to look at it every year or even every quarter but unless unless somebody's doing an especially poor job within an asset class where I'd want to make a change or rebalancing or like the U, like the US last year went up so much versus the rest of the the world it was time to rebalance get it back into line uh, unless those things are going on you just can't uh, get uh, start chasing your tail by switching out of the underperforming assets every year and into the upper uh, per- better performing assets because you will be chasing your tail. One last point I do want to make about these multi-manager products: what you care about, and if you're if a customer's not understanding what's going into it, what you want to go back to is making that advisor explain how much of my money that I put in and pay for is going to actually end up investing. What's the gap? And you like it not to be big, right? So if it's, you know, maybe I'm losing 1% a year or even one and a quarter percent a year between what I put in and what I get out, well, that's pretty good, even one and a half. Sometimes 
when you look at that process of what you're paying, the guy you're talking to, his firm, and then all the underlying managers and all the different fees along there, when that starts to add up to be 2 and 3% coming out of your pocket every year between what you put in and what actually gets invested, that's coming. That's performance. It's a problem a lot of times with these insurance products and a lot of the annuities where there, there are so many people in them between you and the investment that it just – just just destroys your performance. So that's the one thing that uh, a simple way for people to get a handle on, is this a good investment or not? I want to go back to uh, this chapter eight, uh, balancing greed versus fear. Um, and that those are the two primary motivators in life, fear and greed. Uh, I, you know, I remember talking to an amazing sales guy and he said, look, if you can press the fear button or if you can press the greed button, you'll make a sale. And I think it's in investing, that's really what it's driven by is like the fear of losing money, the fear of, of not having enough money. And then, oh, I made 5%. I want to make 7%. And and the emotions get involved and everything just goes out the window. Uh, and you've kind of alluded to a couple times where people invest and then they, they get into the game and they, they start changing stuff up really, really quickly, like every six months or every year. Um how does somebody balance greed? Should they just 100% step away from the emotions? Well, great question. Uh, you know, I like to say that it shouldn't be called bulls and bears in our business. It should be called pigs and sheep because either <laughs> it's greed or panic. Um, uh, you know, the concept that I talk a lot about is the three pockets, the savings pocket, tra- uh, investing pockets, and trading pocket. That grew out of helping people manage their emotions. Uh, in a practical way. Um, and and the trading pocket, you don't have to put it in the trading pocket. You can put all your money in, in your investing pocket. It'll probably be better for you, investing and saving. Um, the purpose of the trading pocket is to help you manage the fear and greed. So, for instance, let's say you say, or you know, guy says to his wife, I am a better bunny manager than any of those guys. I know what I'm doing. I got an opportunity and I'm going to do it. The, the wife can say, that's great. I trust you. You're a smart guy. But I don't think you should be our only money manager with all our money. <laughs> so you take 10 or 15 or 20% and you play with that or, or do that the way you want. Uh, or somebody themselves sees, ah, this is an opportunity. I'm going to go for it. Uh, I think it's good for the next three months or whatever. Great. Do that in your trading pocket. When people ask, for instance, is this the right time to invest? You say, that's a terrific question for trading. It is not at all relevant to the investing pocket. So you use that that trading pocket as your fear-greed manager. On, on the greed side, it's put the money in there that you want to actively manage. You, you want to you run short term. The investing pocket is only built up over time and left alone. Um, you know, it's almost like a, a bottle of red wine or a keg of red wine. Leave it alone. If you open it every day, air gets into it and destroys it. So that's the attitude you take. Now, interestingly, though, and this only came from just working with thousands of customers over the years, you can use the trading pocket for fear management. Let's say you have somebody you're talking to and they're like, you can tell they're skittish. So what you say to them is, let's build up your trading pocket too. Let's say 10% or 15% of your money. Um, and what that's for is when the person wakes up, just like my sister-in-law I remember did, and panics and says, I think the world's falling apart and has to sell something. They have to do something. They can sell out their trading pocket, put it all in cash, 
but mainly leave their investing pocket alone. So this has really used uh, Three Pockets as a, as a fear, greed manager. You know, I should just say in, in, in closing on this point, I got a lot of this idea from looking at, at, at how people manage alcohol. You know, when the government outlawed alcohol, uh, it didn't work at all. <laughs> right they were making it in their bathtubs and everything and it's the same when an advisor says no all your money has to go into this you know group of portfolio and you leave it alone people can't help but cheat so you're better off just just like with alcohol to say look it's okay if you have a glass of wine every once in a while nothing wrong with that but if you're having a bottle every night you know maybe you got a problem and it's the same thing with a portfolio it's okay to have some in that trading pocket uh, it, it, if, if anything, it helps them then leave the investing pocket alone. You know, I, I like the analogy of, of having a, a wine collection too because, you know, I, I've got a wine fridge and it's got about 120 bottles in it. Oh, wow. And uh, I'll uh, I'll be drinking those, those bottles of wine. And when I get down to a certain level, it's like, okay, I have to reinvest in my, my wine fridge and I'll, I'll – you know, I'll go down to maybe 80 bottles and boom, I'll go back to up 120. And the reason this is I've got long-term bottles in there that, that are going to hang around for five or six or seven years before I open them. And they just sit there collecting sediment and not even touched. So I think that's a great analogy too for investing. It is great because it's rebalancing. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, you can, you can drink that bottle of wine every now and again and spoil people by giving it away every now and again, but you got to... You got to keep it stocked so you don't end up touching those gems at the bottom of the fridge. Well put. Hey, uh, I wanted to ask you, where can people go to get more information about uh, the book and and to to read more? Well, I did I did create a website, um, and, and and it was partly for the professional investors because. Um, I wanted to end up getting so much content in the book, I felt I needed to have an addendum because, you know, professional investors or advisors really like to understand the detail. So I put that detail on on the website, timmccarthy.com. And then I also just put, you know, interesting articles or as the world changes different countries, what ones look better or worse. Uh, I put that on the website um, just for people to get, as well as mention a lot of other websites uh, and a lot of other articles. So, for instance, if you, if you uh, interview another book that, that looks good and be interesting for investors, then I'll make reference to that so people can uh, know different websites to go to. Also, what, what are the websites to go to to pick advisors? Uh, or very importantly, how to check out a broker or an advisor. You know, what are the sites to go to that the regulators have? Hmm. The Safe Advisor, How to Make Your Money Grow in a Volatile Global Economy. Tim McCarthy with us today. Before I run away, one last question, Tim. Um, what piece of advice would you give our listeners today so they can start? I'm sure a lot of them already have uh, investment packages put together because most of them are business people. What advice would you give them? Well, the, the most important is what stops people is to say, is this the right time? And just to recognize in the investing pocket, you don't have to worry about time. Uh, you just have to start and do a little bit. You know, they may be worried, for instance, on the emerging markets. Oh, China, is it all falling apart or whatever? I don't I want to wait until it's the right time. Uh, that's the wrong thing to say. It's better to say, look, if I put a little bit now in, I'll always be partly right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's probably the most important advice. Hmm. Fascinating. Tim, thanks for coming on the show today. It was awesome. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Mm. 
Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe, leave comments, or make a request on our website, businessbooktalk.com. See you next week. Thank you.